0: all right everybody welcome back to another edition of the untitled jeff buck podcast i'm your host jeff buck and today it's another version of the new how i got here series where i ask people in nascar how they got there what was their career path what was their big break? What led them to be where they are today? We know so many people on NASCAR who have just been in their current positions for a while, but what's their backstory? I don't really know. And so one of those people is Mike Joy from Fox Sports. I mean, he's been there since 2001. I started following NASCAR in 2004, so he's been there ever since I got there. I've seen him in older clips and things like that from CBS and shows like that back in the day, TNN. But I didn't really know his whole backstory, so I thought it would be kind of cool to sit down with him, hear how he got his start, hear what led him to be where he is today, and hear if he thinks that path has changed or if other people could do it. So let's go over to the Fox Sports TV compound at Daytona International Speedway, chat with Mike Joy, and hear what he has to say. All right, everybody, I'm here with Mike Joy. We just had a lovely lunch in the TV compound out here, surrounded by the Fox crew, and everybody's digging in and chowing
1: down. Mike, how are you? Great. Great, Jeff. Thanks for asking me.
0: Yes. Well, you did the social spotlight last year, and I really enjoyed doing that with you. And so now is a new feature talking about you and how you got here and how you made it. Now, Mike, um, you know, I started following NASCAR in 2004, so by the time I started paying attention, you were already on Fox, and... um, you know, obviously, what I know of you from before that, I've seen on clips, not to make you sound old, but older clips of older races and things like that. But, and so I know that CBS was involved and MRM was involved, but I don't really know how it all connected and how you got from one place to the next place. So could you tell me, like, how you got started and how this whole thing started to come to be?
1: I was in college, and it was right after the dawn of College FM radio. And we had a very progressive station, and it was all um, progressive rock, uh, drug-infused music at night. But the station had a mandate to do live sports of all the university's teams. So I had done uh, football and basketball play-by-play. The sports I didn't play in college, uh, I broadcast and learned my trade from the other students who who had experience doing it. And it was fun. Uh, I got to doing news for the station, and that was no fun. We had a UPI teletype machine at the station, donated, of course. Um, But you were forbidden to rip and read. Rip a piece of copy off the teletype and read what those professionals had written. All stories had to be rewritten. Why is that? Um, Because reading off the printed page wasn't, you weren't learning anything. Okay. Okay? and i i didn't want to bother with that not because i was lazy it just it didn't challenge me uh, and maybe i just didn't enjoy writing all that much but i found that i could look at one of those news stories and rewrite it in my head and rebroadcast it as i went and people started telling me that's a very useful skill along with broadcasting live sports well my goal i wanted to be the next dan gurney or the next mark donahue i wanted to race um, didn't have any money to find out if I had any talent, you know. And there weren't the junior racing series and cars like Bandoleros and Legends. There were quarter midgets, but they were few and far between. There just wasn't that opportunity. Uh, even Daryl. Daryl got in his first race car at age 17. Wow. So in college, we were running road rallies and autocrosses, which is pylon racing in the parking lot. But we didn't have an opportunity to really race. So... We would run these autocrosses, and one place we ran was a quarter-mile track in Massachusetts Riverside Park Speedway. They would run stock cars on Tuesday and Saturday nights, and we would have the track Sunday for our autocrosses. Well, the track announcer, the PA announcer, was also an author and a Shakespearean actor, John Wallace Spencer, and I learned a lot from him, especially about timing. Well, John wrote all his books about things that could not be disproven, uh, UFOs, The Bermuda Triangle, things like that. And he was having to do book tours. They needed another announcer. Well, I was autocrossing one day, and they said, hey, when you're not running your car, would you go up to the PA booth and just fill in the people that might wander by because the Speedway was attached to an amusement park, and they're seeing what's going on. Like on the same night you're running? On the same day, yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, in between runs with our car, I'd go do that. Well, here comes Ed Carroll, the fiery Irishman that owned the racetrack. Why are several hundred people sitting in the stadium watching one car go around cones instead of being out in his park spending money? Well, they were being entertained. We were having fun. And I got offered a job Saturday nights as the assistant announcer for his stock car track. Now, I was in college full-time. Part-time, I was busting tires in a Firestone store. Which, because it was a union shop, I was making three oh five an hour, <laughs> while my friends were pumping gas or flipping burgers for a buck seventy five, which was minimum wage. So I thought I was doing great. Wow. So when they told me they'd offer me twenty five dollars a night to announce the stock car races, boom! That was awesome. Yeah. Um, so I turned them down. <laughs> I said, I said, "There's no way." I said, "I'm a fan of Formula One and Trans Am and Can Am." And all you got is a bunch of jalopies going around the track, you know, in, in circles. Mm-hmm. They're just turning left. And the PR guy, Joe Mahoney, said, why don't you come to the track one night? Why don't you come Saturday night and see? So Saturday night, and it's the, it, I'm watching the A Conce, and it's the last chance to get in the main event. And these two cars come off turn four, side by side, banging wheels, bouncing off the wall. One guy wins by inches, and the 6,000 people there go crazy. <laughs> and I went... Hell, i got to be a part of this. Cool. So I'm the announcer at this quarter-mile racetrack. And for the really big events, they would bring in the New England legend, then as now, Ken Squire, to work the PA. And that's where I really, really learned a lot from Kenley about how to make, make heroes out of these just, just everyday people. I was really naive. I thought these Saturday Night Racers, that was their job. They were professional racers. That's what they did. I didn't realize that one ran a repair garage, one drove an oil truck, one was a long-distance trucker during the week, and they just carved out time on Saturdays to race. Uh, So I had a lot to learn. But that was the start of it, and it was the notice from Ken that helped open a lot of doors. Wow. Yeah. So at what point did, you know, so you're you're
0: observing him or working alongside him? At what point did you you know obviously you respected him at what point did he come to you and say you know you're you're good at this you need more of an opportunity
1: well it didn't take long i mean within two years i was working doing public address five nights a week throughout new england new york state long island um, is after it after cor- you were done with college or no it's still overlap overlap there's a lot of overlap um, and some cold winters, you know, and eating a lot of mac and cheese and grilled cheese sandwiches in the winters. But that's okay. You know, I was, I thought, I thought, really thought this could work into something. And in 1975, five years after this started, uh, went to work at Stafford with Jack Aroot at, at his dad's track. And we had a ball. And we'd have, you know, we'd have Ken come down for some big shows. And, and we just... I I think we honed as many announcers out of Stafford as we did top-level drivers to go to Cup. That's where it really took off. Uh, Jack came down to Daytona in 76, end of 76. I followed him at the end of 78. We worked for MRN full-time in the office during the week, selling ads, signing up stations, and then broadcasting on the weekends. And it was a, a tremendous education. And when Jack left, I ended up running MRN for three years, and CBS was by now broadcasting. And I left MRN full time, kept doing the races on the weekends, but left the full time job because it was a it, because of an opportunity. And then, as soon as I left, then CBS called. They couldn't, they couldn't interrupt what I was doing at MRN, but once I was no longer there full time, they said. We want you to come work oh, for us I in the see. pits. And I again, see. that was Ken Squire. In the meantime, I learned so much from Ken and Barney Hall and Ned Jarrett. And that kind of helped me craft what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be in this business.
0: I, I would imagine, though, that the transition from radio to TV, it just it seems to me like it can't be easy at all. How did you, was it natural for you?
1: In the pits, it's very easy, because in the pits you're reporting, the difference is instead of just telling people what you're seeing and having to flesh out the word picture, it's show and tell. It's when you move to the booth that TV becomes very different from radio. Radio, you have to create the entire word picture of the event, of the separation between cars, what the cars look like, Um, not just the attitude, but The colors, the paint schemes, the sponsor logo, everything. You have to create that word picture for radio. And in TV, the best TV announcers let the picture do most of the talking Hmm. and try to tell the viewer what they can't see, how things are developing, um, whether intervals are growing or shrinking, and things that they can't readily see. And the more technology we put on the screen... Uh, and especially with the new scoring pylon, there's less of that information that we have to give, and we can delve much more into the why instead of the what you are seeing.
0: So when you go from radio to TV, or like, does some, do you have to like, break habits of oversharing? Like, like, if somebody wanted to get into it now, should they go straight TV, or should they still start in radio and build their way up that
1: way? I think radio challenge your creativity much more than television from sitting in the booth. Television challenges your restraint much more than radio. On radio, I knew that when I was talking, there were nine other voices that just couldn't wait to get in, and all they had to do was flip the switch. And the rule in radio that Ken started then is now... Uh, is twofold. You lose your breath, you lose your turn. If somebody interrupts you, you stop mid-sentence because they respect what you're saying, but there's something of immediacy. Interesting. If, if you interrupt, it better be the second coming or something. You know, it better be important enough to interrupt the train of thought of what's being said. In TV, I always tell people new to TV, I said one of my favorite Mark Twain quotes, and I have a lot of them. I never learned anything when I was talking. And so, instead of talking wall-to-wall through the event, we need to be respectful and restrained. Let the cars go through frame and listen to them. Let a battle develop. And even sometimes, let a crash unfold. Let the people see it. And then tell them what and why. Hmm. You don't have to say, hey, there goes so-and-so up on his side. Here's so-and-so in the wall. There's so-and-so in the roof. But we do because we're reacting to what we see. Right. So it's, it's very, very hard to exhibit that restraint and let the picture, and only the picture, tell the story. Now, when you have three type A personalities in the booth, all of us having been vaccinated with phonograph needles, it's <laughs> very, very hard to have that restraint. Yeah. So...
0: Tell me how it ended up that you went to Fox, because it's just like, I mean, I guess I could just say, oh, you were announcing on CBS, and then you end up on Fox once the contract switch over, but was
1: it that simple? Was there any question that you would go there? Oh, there was. I joined Fox in, I joined CBS in 83, and CBS at that time only did three races a year, Daytona, Michigan, Talladega. So I would do the rest of the season for MRN, and that persisted for several years, and then I was doing just CBS and then picked up TNN when they got into racing and did all the TNN races for five or six years but in 1998 I began a three year run of doing Formula One for Fox with Derek Bell and while Bob Barsha did the same job on speed which then wasn't really part of Fox it was kind of different um, so that's where my relationship with Fox started many of the Fox management were former CBS people because Fox Sports was started when they got the NFL contract from CBS. So they absorbed a lot of those people. So as 2000 rolled around, CBS pretty much assumed that I would move with the NASCAR property to Fox. It wasn't that easy. Uh, NASCAR had a play-by-play person who was, for a better word, a company man. That they really wanted in there, and you know there were a lot of people. There were only two jobs: NBC and Fox. NBC signed Alan Bestwick right away. That left the Fox job, and there, so there were a number of us in there vying for it. And I got it.
0: Wow, very yeah. interesting.
1: But it was it was t- kind of touch and go there for a while. And I think what I think what put it over the top was they had hired Daryl. They were talking to Larry McReynolds, and I made sure that. Uh, through Ed Gorin, David Hill and the Fox execs had a tape of a late-season Saturday race that Larry Daryl and I had done together at Phoenix. And they looked at that, and they they go, that's it. That's the chemistry we want. There we are.
0: Mike, is it possible today to still follow the career path that you had? I mean, like... For instance, you know you, you were a pit reporter on TV. Well, now Fox hired Regan Smith because he has the expertise. And the, you know, these drivers today are so good at talking. Um, can someone still follow the path that you
1: did to become the next Mike Joy? I think so. I think the entry level is much easier than it has ever been. Really? Any one of, of your listeners and readers can buy a piece of equipment, go to their local short track, uh, establish a blog, and be credentialed as media, and get something up there on the web. Anybody can do that. There are no zero barriers to entry other than the willingness to do it and the cost of the equipment. And then, the more you do, the more you get noticed. If you're doing this at a local track and the local track people are smart, they'll hire you to do it or hire you to work the public address. You know, there are, there are positions. That's how I started. Those jobs are still out there, still available. There are two-and-a-half radio networks covering NASCAR on a regular basis, MRN, PRN and then the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Network, which does their one race. So there are opportunities, um, and there are people coming through radio, You know, that could transition to TV. And again, a lot of that depends on the focus of the network. Uh, Eric Shanks, who's our boss, he really likes the idea of having boots on the ground that have been on the field. And that's not just in NASCAR, that's in all sports. He wants ex players and ex coaches, crew chiefs, pit crewmen to do the reporting on the ground partly because they instantly know what they're looking at and why, but also because they can add their own layer of experience into what they're describing. I support that. So no, I wouldn't get a job as a Fox Pit reporter now because, and and like I said, there are talented people that want that job, wanted that job that Regan Smith has. But uh, he's well-spoken. He's He puts his thoughts together in a good, concise way. He's going to do a great job for us. I don't think we'll ever have all ex-athletes in the pits, but we'll have a balance of them, and, and, you know, I think that's good. Just like I'm not sure we'll ever have all ex-drivers in the booth. I I see two that might be able to, after a couple of years as booth analysts, transition to a play-by-play role. And I won't tell you who. I'll go talk to their agents first. But you you know who they are.
0: Mike, uh, what else is left for you to accomplish in your career? What else do you want to do that's on your your bucket list?
1: The next one, you know, the next race. um, I've called Major League Baseball for Fox. That was fun. Would love to do some more. But I respect that Fox has people whose expertise is 100% baseball. And so it's not for me to meddle in that, you know. Um, Sports television has evolved so much. When I started... ABC and NBC used the same three or four play-by-play announcers each for everything they put on the air. Hmm. I mean, Jim McKay did everything, you know, from the Olympics to Indy to Daytona to any, everything, because he was that familiar voice that was important to the network to project to the viewers, and if he was there, it was a big event. CBS's approach was different. They knew auto racing was a very different sport. They did not put it in the hands of... Of Chris Schenkel. They did for a while. They tried that. Uh, and their other Brett Musburger. They tried that. They knew that the sport required the expertise of particular people who were immersed in it. And that's how I got that opportunity. Same with Chris Economaki, with Dave Despain, with David Hobbs, with Ned Jarrett. We were all immersed in racing. And because CBS believed that that was what was needed. So it was a combination of timing, opportunity, recommendation, maybe a little talent and a lot of ambition. I don't know. But um, to get to this level would be much more difficult than it was. Uh, There's only two networks doing NASCAR. So there's only two top play-by-play positions. And there's a lot of undercard, you know, and and, uh, we now have a separate play-by-play for each national series of NASCAR. And another group doing the touring series, you know, now for for NBCSN. So there's opportunities there. Vince Welch's son did the pits for the ARCA race uh, the other day, which is great because he really wants to be in this business, had the background. They gave him an opportunity. Wonderful. So at the entry level, at the mid-level, there are a lot of opportunities. Um, I know there's a bunch of people hoping I retire real soon, and my intent is to greatly disappoint them. (laughs) Greatly.
0: Well, you definitely haven't disappointed us on this podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and joining us, and really appreciate you taking the time. Well, congrats to you,
1: because, you know, maybe the career path that I took was a little unique and a little different to where I've gotten, and the same could be said for you. I mean, I don't know another writer in America who works directly for his readers, Um, and I think what you've put together... Not only is it terrific, and I enjoy reading it, but I now see you've spawned a host of imitators. (laughs) And that is really the true sign of success, when you see a whole bunch of people trying to do what you're doing and make it work. And so far, nobody else has to this level. So congratulations to you, uh, to the folks at Patreon for creating that platform, and to all of those people who contribute 2 bucks a month and up. Uh, to get the news right from the source and get it first I think it's I think it's terrific, very proud of you.
0: thank you so much. That means more than more than I can say. I really appreciate it. Thank you. all right, everybody. So there you have it and um man <laughs> it's crazy uh you know it's pretty surreal to have Mike joy say that I, I respect that guy so much, and he just conducts himself with so much dignity and and I just have a uh, immense amount of respect for all that he's accomplished in the sports and um, man to, to have him say that kind of stuff. I I'm just babbling, but it's, it's kind of overwhelming, you know, it's, it's crazy. So definitely appreciate that. Appreciate his support as well. And uh, speaking of support, I'm so lucky to have almost 1100 patrons. Now that is crazy. Uh, I got a bunch of new patrons from Daytona week. So thank you guys for coming on board. Thank you for supporting both the podcast and the website. And as part of the Patreon thing, Um, I give shout-outs to patrons who uh, pledge $10 or more per month. And so some of the people that I'd like to give a shout-out this week include Lindsay Lauber, Denise Sorge, Johanna Strone, who is a.k.a. Moto Johanna, Whitney Thomas, who is the wife of USAC driver Kevin Thomas Jr., and someone who gave me a really nice welcome when I was at the Chili Bowl in January. So I really appreciate her pledging as well. That that was super nice. And Howie Moulton. Who is also known as Jeff Glucks Hat on Twitter. You know, I, I was kind of worried when the Jeff Glucks hat account popped up last year. I'm like, oh gosh, you know those parody accounts, they can be kind of mean. But Howie actually has been really nice to me on Twitter with the with the hat account. Um, a couple of people have asked me who that is, and he he hasn't been um shy about saying that his real name's Howie. So um yeah, I appreciate that. I actually sent him my hat from last year. 'Cause I figured, you know, he's the hat, he's the hat guy on, on Twitter, so uh, my my original hat, I asked for his address and he's like, Why are you sending me or why are you asking for my address? I think he thought it was something bad, but then I just sent him my hat. Uh, I cleaned it first though, don't worry, I, I washed it. But anyway, um so yeah, I appreciate all those people and everybody who is supporting on Patreon. Um and and because of that I'm off to Atlanta this week. So that's another exciting thing. Hopefully the next podcast you hear will be a post-race podcast from Atlanta Motor Speedway. I'm a little bit nervous about that, however, because rain's in the forecast, and I just don't know if I'll be able to to change my flight. I was already looking at it, and it's kind of expensive, over $400. So I, I think it might just be best if I went home in the case of a rainout. Really, really hope that doesn't happen. But um, hopefully I'll be doing a podcast from Atlanta talking to some media member and we can just laugh about how we thought there was going to be rain and there wasn't. That'd be great. Anyway, until next time, I really appreciate you listening. So I'll talk to you next time on the Untitled Jeff Gluck Podcast.